Well, it's great to be with you this morning, you who are sitting here and those online. Uh, my name's Tyler. I'm, I've been your summer sabbatical pastor. If you're new here, that's who I am. Uh, and I say that with a little note of sadness because I only have today and then serve day uh, next Sunday and then uh, my final Sunday with you, which will be the last Sunday of, of August, looking at 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, but uh, the note of sadness for me should be a note of gladness for this community because when I go away, then of course your pastor Travis will be back, not Labor Day weekend. You'll have a guest preacher, Rich Leatherberry from uh, Bellevue Press. Uh, but soon thereafter, Travis will be back back with you. And that's, uh, that's a good thing. I'm assuming he'll be rested, fired up, and, uh, and ready to go. Well, we continue this morning in 1 Peter. Uh, last week we looked at the first chapter of 1 Peter, and I took the angle of looking at the, the tenses of the gospel. We looked to the past, Peter. We saw Peter looked back, the past tense, both in history, Jesus and the apostles, and then this kind of mysterious prehistory, the decision of God before time to choose for his people. So there was the past work of God. And then I looked at the promise of God's future work. And then I tried to make the case that both of these, looking back and looking to the future, empower us in the present. We engage in the present, mindful of God's past and mindful of God's future. And before I uh, jump into today's scripture, First uh, Peter chapter 2, I, I wanted to just make a quick comment, and when pastors say quick comment, you know, that can be a little longer than normal quickness, um, but I, I did want to say this, and I didn't accent it last week, so I'm taking time to say it today. In my opinion, and it's simply that, in my opinion, I, I think it's the future work of God, that future orientation, that's the kind of the missing ingredient in the church today. That's my, my contention uh, this morning. Every time we do communion, we look back, right? We remember those final words of Jesus, and I think most of us in our faith are mindful of looking back to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And of course, there's a lot of focus on the presence of God and our present responsibilities uh, as a church, as Christians, to be about uh, doing God's work now. But I've preached and I've heard uh, very few messages, at least in the churches where I hang out, very few messages, if any, actually, that focus on that future work of God. I shared the words last week, some Greek words, that the eschaton, the, the kind of the final days, apocalypse was in the text, the revelation of Christ, and the parousia, just simply the, this day that is, is coming. All of that end times kind of stuff, it feels to me is kind of, oh, 
it's, it's like a missing ingredient in a meal. Again, I think we get a lot of looking back. We get a lot of the present. And, and perhaps not as much of the future, uh, future work of God as we should. And I, I highlight this because this is interesting. Everywhere in the New Testament, there's mention or reference to God's future activity, the hope that is ours in Christ, what God will do in the future. That's everywhere in the New Testament. So it's puzzling to me that this future orientation seems to be lacking a bit, at least in my preaching and in, in preaching that I've heard. Uh, case in point, Jesus was all about the age to come. In fact, his whole ministry can be kind of understood as a, a foretaste or a preview of that age to come. A mindfulness of the age to come or the day, the parousia, is also front and center in Paul's writings. In fact, for both Jesus and Paul, the Christian life, our Christian ministry, Christian ethics, can be understood as embodying now these future realities of God and God's kingdom. It's as if we're giving the world a kind of foretaste of what is to come. So again, I think it's just sort of odd that we don't focus perhaps as much as we should on this future element of the gospel. And uh, I think there are a couple reasons for this. Remember I said this was, is a preacher's quick comment. So I have a little more to, to say. And I've left plenty of time for today's message, so, so don't, don't get too nervous. But uh, I think there are a couple of reasons why the church can be jumpy about focusing on this future work of God, again, that's everywhere in the New Testament. A couple of reasons. One, this subject, which you could use the title eschatology, last things, has been abused by some Christians. And I'm thinking of timelines or anything uh, that indicate that, you know, the end is near. It's less, less prevalent now. But back in the day, there were books and movies that would interpret current events in light of biblical prophecies and, and come up with dates, you know, for the return of Christ. All those dates have come and gone. So it's kind of this misuse of eschatology. Whereas the New Testament itself is really clear that no one knows that date. No one knows when Christ returns, but we are to live as if he's coming back this afternoon. That's really the New Testament perspective. Anytime he could show up, are we doing, are we about the things that he has called us to be about and to do? Another reason for the absence of teaching about this future reality of God's uh, kingdom, God's work, is that it can seem escapist. 
can seem escapist. Folks can feel like there's so much work to do now, why focus on the future? It can seem kind of like a cop-out. And there's a partial truth here. There is a lot of work to do now. Sharing the gospel, ministering to the hurting, loving the lonely, all that the church is to be about, tons to do. But I would argue, like I mentioned last week, a mindfulness of God's future can actually empower our present ministry because it reminds us that our good works now will be brought to fruition by God himself when he establishes the new heaven and the new earth. So it's a hopeful orientation. We are to be about what God has called us to do, but the ultimate fulfillment of those good works, the ultimate fulfillment of the church's ministry, is God's work, not ours. What we do is a kind of foretaste, a partial a glimpse of what God will do one day in full. So I don't think it's escapist. Rather, I think it some reflection and mindfulness of the future, the coming kingdom, challenges us to be all about kingdom work now. Uh, so that, using the words of one of Jesus' parables, when the master returns, he finds us doing the things he gave us to do. Thank you. I did want to pause. I think we can do this in, in our community here. Any uh, comments, thoughts, questions? on this. This isn't my sermon. This was just kind of a follow-up to last week, but I feel it's somewhat controversial, perhaps. Do any of you have a a thought on this? Uh, And this isn't rhetorical. I'm saying we could take about a minute if somebody had something that, that you feel would edify the body on this subject. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So something about our human nature maybe doesn't like to think too much or yeah. about the future. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. Good point. Good. I'm. I'm honestly. I'm sort of looking for help. <laughs> These are these were my thoughts, but the, the, these are great. Yeah.
kind of ties in with, with your comment, yeah. So it's the spirit of the age is not future, long-term future looking. I'll do one more, yes. Uh, Megan. Yeah. Yes, completely agree, yeah. Well, tell you what, keep thinking about this whole future, eschatology, and all, because it's, again, everywhere in the New Testament, and I think it behooves us as Christians to have kind of the same balance of past, present, future that the scriptures reflect. Okay, thank you. Now for today's sermon. First uh, Peter chapter 2, those first 10 verses. And uh, again, I did plan on these comments this time I just took uh, to follow up on last week. So uh, if you're a clock wa watch watcher, don't be, don't be anxious. Um, in this passage, in today's passage, Peter focuses on the fact that individual Christians are formed into a community through the gospel. Individual Christians are formed into community through the gospel. In other words, though we all have to respond to the gospel individually, personally, it's a personal faith, as we respond, we're gathered together with others who have responded, and we form this community of faith. Again, this is a consistent theme in the New Testament. The first disciples were called individually by Jesus. We read those stories early in the Gospels. And then they become, later in the Gospels, the Twelve. They're a community. In Acts chapter 2, two Peter preaches the Gospel on Pentecost... And lots of folks respond. And if they're responding, right, they're responding individually, personally. But then in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, we, we read, And all who believed, think individually believed, were together and had all things in common. Greek word there for common, koinonia, which churches sometimes use for fellowship. Um, and then with apologies to, to other Christian traditions, the term saint in the New Testament is never singular. It's never used in the singular. It's always plural. The saints, the community. And in chapter 2, Peter uses a number of metaphors to, to emphasize this point. Verse 4 as you come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by 
humans, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, think individual, individually, are being built up as a spiritual house, one entity, community. Verse 5, the spiritual house, metaphor shift here, is a holy priesthood community. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, the reference to the community of Israel. A royal priesthood, again, a plurality. A holy nation, again, God's people, Israel. A people, collectively, for his own possession. And in all of these, the structure is the same. Individual stones, priests, members of a nation, members of a people, built into a community. A community with a purpose to proclaim, verse 9, proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you together. Then in verse 10, a kind of recap, and I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. You who were, who were once not his community now are his community. In other words, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So this emphasis in Peter of us as individuals, of course we all need to individually, personally respond to Christ, but as soon as we do, we are incorporated into the community. This is what Paul works with in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, his famous body of Christ metaphor. Individual parts, but what? One body with Christ as the head. Again, we respond to the gospel individually, like Jesus saying to Peter, follow me. But when we respond, we're joined with others who have responded and become the people of God, the community of faith. In my opinion, this teaching is pretty straightforward. There's a kind of repetition in, in, with Peter that makes his point abundantly clear. Individuals built into community. So I'd like to take my, the remainder of my message and focus on kind of the practical implications of this for us today. And I have two thoughts. If it's God's will to form community it's incumbent on us to not resist community. If it's God's purpose and will, which is clearly taught in Scripture, to form community, it's incumbent upon us to not resist community. Our preference or temperament may be to kind of go it alone, and in some ways that's kind of an American tradition right? The individual. Uh, In 2000, Robert Putnam published a book entitled Bowling Alone. Maybe some of you remember that book. And in his book, Putnam describes 
the deterioration of community life in modern America since 1950. That's his contention. He talks about the decline in America of involvement in what he calls uh, civic organizations, voluntary groups, fraternal organizations, PTA, labor unions, clubs, scouts, veteran, veterans groups, bowling teams, title of his book, churches, etc. All of these kinds of groupings that bring a connectedness to life. And I'm guessing Putnam would say today that the increasing presence of social media has only exacerbated the problem. It occurred to me, we talk about connectivity. We don't mean connection with, with an actual flesh and blood human being. We mean a kind of virtual connection. Um, even within the church, the community of the church, uh, folks can stay on a, I've heard it described as uh, a wave at your neighbor as you're both taking out your trash basis. You've lived in the neighborhood forever, and you recognize the person. You always wave to each other, but it never goes, it never goes beyond that. But in Genesis, the, the statement aimed or, originally at the marriage union, I think actually applies to all of us. It's not good for man slash woman to be alone. We're created for community. And redemption through Christ reaffirms God's creation intent. And I think, so I'd say this, it's important for us as Christians to have a bias toward community. A bias toward community. It's foundational to who we are. It's essential to who we are. There's lots of stuff, good stuff, in the life of faith that's not essential. And this is, I want to be super clear when I say this. It's good, but it's not absolutely essential. For example, mission trips are really good. Not absolutely essential to discipleship. Reading through the Bible each year. Be super helpful to anybody who does it. Not absolutely essential to being a Christian. Here's a good one. Praying together as a Christian married couple. Really good if you do it. Not absolutely essential to Christian discipleship. And Steph, I thought of you with this next one. Please forgive me. Volunteering to teach Sunday school. (laughs) Really, really, really good to do. Hope I hit that strongly (laughs) enough. Not absolutely essential to discipleship. Good things not essential. 
not resisting community, embracing and seeking community, essential to discipleship. There's a great verse in Hebrews chapter, chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Then this is my favorite part. As is the habit of some. As is the habit of some. So even back New Testament church days, there was this challenge. Do not neglect meeting together. Have a bias toward community, for community. And the verse continues, by the way, linking to how I started my message today. Uh, Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, capital D, drawing near. So there's that future uh, orientation. So that's, that's my, first, my first point. It's incumbent upon us to not resist community. We should have a bias toward community, whether it's temperamentally our favorite thing or not. The scriptures are unambiguous. If we come to Christ, we're formed into community. Second point. We can think of Christian community in a couple of ways. Uh, Large and small. Maybe there's a medium too, but I'm going with large and small. Community size large is when we gather for worship. It's what we do Sunday mornings. It's all of us together. Sometimes folks will say, you know, I'm a Christian, I just don't really like the whole church thing. From a New Testament point of view, that's a a theological, a spiritual non sequitur. Those don't go together. Uh, I'm a Christian, I just don't like the whole community thing. Christians are to gather. Ecclesia, the church literally means called together. That's the community size large. Then there's community size small. And this is so critically important. Uh, In a couple of minutes, we're going to have our our breakout groups, and those will illustrate what I'm getting at with this point. Uh, There are aspects of community that are just plain challenging to pull off uh, in in a larger body whether that larger body is 50 people or 500 people or 5,000 people. They're just aspects of life together that we can't do in in a large group. Call it logistically difficult. And so we need to get small. We need to get small. And while I wouldn't want to get legalistic about it, I think it's just exceedingly important for Christians to be in some kind of community size small, community size small. In small groups, we can share and pray in a meaningful way. In small groups, 
we can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In small groups, we can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We can bless and encourage one another in small groups in a way that's simply, again, logistically challenging in a large group. Now, I totally realize that I'm the temporary summer guy here, and I don't want to go sticking my nose in where it doesn't belong, but I'll say this. I assume that at least to some degree, when I say small groups, you know what I'm talking about. And, I hope, are committed to one. That in some way, shape, or form, this community, and knowing Travis, I would guess this is the case, have, have made a commitment to getting folks in those smaller groups. What the group is can vary tremendously, the nature of the group. I may have mentioned before in a message that my wife, Candy, and I are in a couples group. We've been, uh, we meet with two other couples. We try to do twice a month. Often we, we're unable to do that. But uh, we've been meeting for about 10 years. Pray for each other, study a book or scripture. It's, it's solid gold, that group. It's the, they are the folks we call. We call one another, you know, with the code red emergency. That's who we call. So, again, solid gold. I'm also in a group, uh, a guy's group. There are three of us uh, who've met almost every week since 1989. Some of, it occurred to me, some of you weren't even born yet. Am I accurate? With that, yeah, that age thing again. Uh, here's what we do. It doesn't get simpler than this. We meet for one hour, and we're like, we are legalistic about the hour. It's an hour. We go around, there are three of us, go around the circle, and just kind of check in. How's life? How you doing? Uh, prayer requests, each do that. Then, how's this for sophisticated? Then we pray, you pray for the guy on your right. And the last person is the one who closes out the prayer time. Uh, I won't go through all the, uh, the life experiences that that little group has prayed about since 1989, let me just say, again, solid gold. Treasure those relationships. So I hope you're in some sort of community size small where we can, you, we are experiencing that kind of life together that Jesus wants for us. So in conclusion, community Community is God's will. It's God's will for us. Jesus died and rose not simply to save a bunch of individuals and then leave us in our individuality, but to form us into community, a building, a priesthood, a nation, 
a people. Being actually in community is God's will for you and God's will for me. Let's join our hearts in prayer. So, Father, we thank you for this scripture and its encouragement and challenge to us to really be all about community, uh, coming together as followers of Jesus and gathered in his name and in the power of your spirit. I pray that for each of us here, uh, we may have that place of community, uh, both size large and size small. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.